This evening, I'd like to share with you some reflections and uh, in, in intertwine it with this holiday today, this uh, holiday and this day that honors Martin Luther King Jr. and his, you could say, his contributions to our country and to our lives. And in light of that, I'd like to begin with a, uh, a quote from a, actually a commencement speech he gave at Lincoln University in 1961. And he said, through our scientific genius, we made of the world a neighborhood. And now through our moral and ethical commitment, we must make, it, make of it a brotherhood and a sisterhood. We must all learn to live together as brothers and sisters, or we will all perish together as fools. This is, must, this is what we must learn. You know, I appreciate the encouragement that he gives to us in these words, the, the importance of um, learning to live together really as family. And if we don't, you know, the, the results of that is uh, to perish as fools. And tonight what I'd like to offer is possibly a way forward, a way of understanding what it, what it takes to come together as uh, a real family, a family of belonging. Also in particular here in our community, but also in our, in our larger communities. And, um, and groups that we find ourselves in. And you find a, a similar notion in early Buddhism. For example, the, the Buddha will it was, use this one image of when the monastics could blend and live together like water blending with milk. So this blending of milk and water. And what I appreciate about this is that milk and water are different substances, and yet they can blend together. And I think in the same way, I think that that is the skillful community where there's an honoring of difference, but there's still this ability to blend, to blend together in some kind of manner. And the image actually that I'd like to use tonight to kind of frame uh, the reflections I want to share with you is, is really the image of, um, you could say, of the mountains that hover over us here in Flagstaff. And especially now with a little bit of snow on them, I find that it's so moving. And when I see that, when I really see the image of those mountains, it reminds me, it reminds me of really the promise of this path, of, of this vast and beautiful freedom that can arise through this kind of exploration that we do here together, for example, here on Monday nights. And I think it's also something inspiring when I think about still the kind of oppressive forms of racism that still plague our country. What a beautiful image to have that to me embodies this quality of a vastness and beauty that, that has this taste of freedom. And at the same time, you know, I reflect on that most prominent peak that you see here from Flagstaff, you know, the, the, the most prominent peak. It's most often, you know, at least in dominant cultures, uh, uh, named Mount Agassiz. And that name reminds me of how far we still need to go on this path 
towards freedom. I think many of you know, hopefully you know, who that mountain is named after. It's named after Louis Agassiz, who was a naturalist. But not only was Louis Agassiz a naturalist, he spent a lot of his time actually doing what I would call pseudo-scientific studies, trying to point out that the white race was the superior race, and that other races were lower, and in particular that the black race was degenerate. And he spent much of his life writing and doing studies around this to help push this idea. And it's such ideas that make it possible for one group to what you can call other the other group, this quality of othering. Because if a human being, if, I, if, if there's a possibility to conceptualize another person as something that is subhuman, it's much easier to harm them. I think a lot of the, the, the project that you find in the scientific studies that Louis Agassiz was, was involved in was around this. And here it is, that name, that name hovering over our town here in Flagstaff. And I think it's also important to be aware of the names that are not as commonly used. Names that have probably been used for thousands of years for these mountains. For example, in the Zuni language, again, in, for uh, 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 the Zuni Pueblo, these mountains, again, are a really sacred place. And for them, they don't call them that. They call them Sunha Kayabacha Yelane, which means, I think, uh, the place where there is water in the volcanic rock. Which is kind of funny because the, the, the Spanish called it Sierra Sinagua, <laughs> which means the place without water. <laughs> they might have been a little more clueless. <laughs> so here's this name, this name of, uh, that, that, that carries a quality of sacredness to it. And so many other names, the Hopi have their own name for it. Uh, Nuva Tayokave, which again, the place of snow on the very top. And actually, there's, there's 13 different native tribes that find these mountains to be a sacred place, all of them with different names for this place. And what I want to point out is how that peak is often named and how that peak has been named but is not named as much that way, I think speak volumes to the dynamics that still shape the world that we live in. Right here in Flagstaff, hovering over us. And hopefully you hear in that process of naming and not naming, do you hear the echoes of the past, the echoes of racism, the echoes of colonization, right here, hovering over Flagstaff. You know, there's that, that famous line by William Faulkner in his, his novel, the, the Requiem of a Nun, the, the past is never dead. 
It's not even past. The past is never dead. It's not even past. And I think hearing these echoes, hopefully you can notice that here is the past right here in this moment. And I think it, it points out something of the particular way that we're invited to be present. I'm not invited to be present to forget about the past or to pretend that there's no kind of force, energetic force from the past, but rather to learn how to be present in a way to skillfully navigate those echoes of the past. Thanks, Jeff, for shutting that. Appreciate it. And I think that's the way that, that, that I want to learn how to meditate. How can I sit here in the present in a way that it's navigating those echoes in the past in a radically different way? Because that's what I've inherited. That's the place I'm, I'm living. This is the very place I'm living. It's the land that I'm standing upon. It holds these, these traces of colonization and racism. These things that Martin Luther King spent a lifetime trying to dispel from this country. And of course, for those of you unfortunate to read the news, <laughs> you know, these, these echoes of racism, if they were only in the distant past, it's amazing just in the last week what happens in this country. It's so close to the world that we live in. And what I want to point out is that it's even closer than that. And this is something that I spoke about a few weeks ago, about how close these, these societal <laughs> tendencies are. Because hopefully you notice it's not only out there, it's within our hearts and minds. Have you noticed this? It'd be so much easier if it'd be like if racism was only out there, if colonization was only out there. If I didn't have a mind that was colonized, that would be so nice. And I shared with you this quote from Krishnamurti that really speaks to this. And I want to share with you that same quote because I think it, it, it's so relevant for, for again, for today and, and honoring the stay of Martin Luther King Jr. Krishnamurti says, if you don't know how your mind reacts, if your mind is not aware of its own activities, you will never find out what society is. You may read books on sociology, study social sciences, but if you don't know how your mind works, you cannot actually understand what society is because your mind is a part of society. It is society. Your reactions, your beliefs, the places you go, the clothes you wear, the things you do and don't do and what you think, society is made up of all this. It is the replica of what is going on in your own mind. So your mind is not apart from society. It is not distinct from your culture, from your religion, from your various class divisions, from the ambitions and conflicts of the many. All this is society and you are part of it. There is no you separate from society.
mountains, right? It's not out there, only out there in the political arena or how mountains are named. It's in these hearts and minds. And there's also something really wonderful about that because it means that, that I have this opportunity to, you, you could say, be a part of a process of decolonization to undo racism by navigating this very heart and mind. So I want to give one example of this just along the lines of race. I think there's lines of this on, on so many different levels. And, and I want to share with you a, a saying from uh, Jesse Jackson. Jesse Jackson realizing this in his own mind, remembering who Jesse Jackson is. Someone who has, again, spent his, spent his life, again, very similarly for um, so much a, a part of the civil rights movement. And he said at one point, he said, there is nothing more painful, me, painful to me at this stage in my life than to walk down the street and hear footsteps and then turn around and see somebody white and feel relieved. That's a shocking and striking thing, don't you think, for Jesse Jackson to say this? So sometimes we can feel like, oh, maybe some people, because of the color of their skin, are, are uh, immune to this. But no matter how we're situated, if we grew up in this country, our minds and our hearts have been racialized in some kind of manner. It's the context within which our minds have been shaped. And what would it be to begin to see this? Not to deny it, not to see it as that, the, uh, for example, these, these racialized minds are only things that happen in the White House. <laughs> It'd be nice if it was that, that was the only place it was. <laughs> Maybe the only difference is there's less editing in the White House. So how to skillfully navigate these echoes, these echoes of racism, these echoes of colonization, that also arise in these hearts and minds. And I want to come back to a couple teachings that we find in early Buddhism. And it comes back to precisely seeing how experience unfolds in this very moment. And there's two aspects of uh, experience unfolding that the Buddha spoke about. One is this Pali word Sankara that I want to talk about. It's usually uh, spoken about in terms of mental fabrications, the kind of concoctions or fabrications, and how that quality of mind and that activity of mind is intertwined with this other Pali word, Pali being the early scriptural language of Buddhism, sanya, which is perception. And in this context, it just means the mind's ability to, it, it recognizes and names things. It goes outside and it sees something and it calls it a tree. And it calls it a tree because it's been, it's, it's been actually shaped by society, a society that speaks English. So the word that arises is tree. It might be different depending if, if you didn't grow up with, with English, but it's the same thing, the shaping that happens. And these are, you can just hear with that, that around that word tree how these are interwoven. You have a sankara, a kind of fabrication, a, a tendency of society that shapes how we see that thing out there and what we name it. So a little bit more about these 
Sankara san, the, the first uh, part of that word just means together, and kara means to create or make. So it's making something together, it's creating something together, it's, it's a fa fabricating in some kind of way. And uh, there's a monastic, Ajahn Suchito, and the way he translates it, which I really appreciate, is he talks about it in terms of patterns or programs of the mind or, or habitual programs. And so in the context of this talk, it's about societal patterns and programs that have shaped the mind. And that those patterns or programs then begin to shape and interact with perception in, in some kind of manner. So I just want to give some examples of this that you may or may not be able to relate to. You know, it can be just around the activity of seeing. So here's this activity of seeing, and then that's going to overlap with perception. For example, seeing a body. And maybe the body that you see appears to be old or young or large or small. It might appear to have brown skin or white skin. And in part because of how society has shaped the mind, there might be other factors, I don't want to deny that. What happens with those kinds of things coming into the mind is that some bodies look more appealing and attractive than other bodies. And it's because of how the mind's been shaped by society so much. And it can happen so quickly. And if you're aware of this, it's amazing how quickly this can happen in terms of the bodies that are appealing or the, the bodies that are attractive compared to the bodies that are, that are not as attractive. And then what happens from that? Well, we see what happens from that. We see that the, the people that have certain bodies that are, that are maybe more attractive or appealing garner more attention. And then the people with other kinds of bodies a lot of times are rendered invisible in a society. And do you hear just in this, this is just the activity of perception and sankhara, these two qualities of the mind. This is, you could say, this is the unfolding of so many divisions that happen in our society. And it's because our, our, our mind's been shaped by that society that is determined and then given to us what is better than and what is less than. And it's not only around sight, it can be around sound. You know, you hear the accent of somebody. And then also there can be just so, such a quick, a, such a quick bias that, that gets intertwined with that, with that perception. For example, sometimes, depending on how one is situated, sometimes uh, people with, with a southern accent, you know, an accent that's coming from the south of this country, a lot of times immediately what can get hooked with that is, oh, less intelligent. And it's right there a sense of less than. Or sometimes in liberal circles, there can be a sense of also just a judgment around that, an assumption of maybe where that person is coming from, just because of a, a, a particular accent that is heard from the mind. So there's a sankara, an habitual pattern around that sound, and then there's that sound and that perception of then naming it in a certain way. And what I mean by naming, it's also the feeling quality of of better than or less than, more intelligent or less intelligent. Or around gender, it's amazing. Have you ever noticed that you walk, you walking down the street, I, I find this amazing about the mind. I'm walking down the street and I see somebody and like I immediately know if they're a man or a woman. Like I, I feel like I know if they're a man or a woman. Isn't that a trip? 
as if I know how that person identifies. I mean, it might be a person that doesn't even identify with that societal construction around male and female. They might not be into that whole binary thing. But the mind really feels like it knows. It's because it's been shaped by society. And I want to point out, this is, in some ways, I'm simplifying this. And I, I want to just at least acknowledge the trickiness of this, because we have a physiology that does this for a very particular reason. And part of that reason is its attempt to keep us safe. Because sometimes things are coming so rapidly as the mind wants to know immediately if this person or this situation is safe. And so a lot of times it's falling back on these habitual programs it gets from society, and then it decides really quickly if something's safe or not. So I just want to acknowledge that, that this is, it's, it's an overlap with our physiology that makes it really tricky, because that can be really helpful to have that at times. I think I gave this example this weekend. I think I've given this example a lot. <laughs> The bunny rabbit. You always got to come back to bunny rabbits because bunny rabbits are just like us. They're mammals. It's so great that the bunny rabbit immediately when it sees a mountain lion, it runs. It's not trying to figure out if this mountain lion is maybe different than other mountain lions. It's maybe kind and cuddly. It's just going to assume that. It's not really like it's doing some serious othering in that situation. And it's what keeps it safe. Unfortunately, we got the same kind of physiology that hopefully we can move forward with so we can not get as hooked by that process of othering. But the other reason I, I mentioned that so is we don't have to feel like horrible, bad people when we have a mind that does these kinds of things. It's just part of the physiology that you've gotten. And then you've been thrown into a kind of a messed up society that has this huge history of slavery and racialization on all kinds of levels, and colonization. So again, how to address this? It's just what we're doing here on Monday nights. It's just to notice what the mind is doing. Just to notice. There's a phrase that, that it's the title of a book that I love to come back to. It's the seeing that frees. The quality of seeing that frees the heart and mind. Because when I'm out there walking around or I meet somebody and I can notice the mind do that, have a little bit of a recoiling or a little bit of attraction in a way that is based on merely what the mind is seeing, I can, I can see it and not be as hooked by it. And then I can actually meet the person in front of me in a more intimate, more real way, rather than through those habitual programs. And it's all based on simply seeing this stuff again and again and again. And it requires me to have the willingness to see it. To, to come away from, I think, maybe it's a common, it's probably a common thing, so much of, of of this assumption that I don't have a mind that's colonized, that I don't have a mind that's racist. That's such a dangerous idea. <laughs> it's, like, it's like thinking that I grew up in the society that, and, and my mind wasn't racialized. That's crazy. 
And the cool thing is, is I, I can start to become free of it. And the one flavor I invite you to really become curious about is the flavor of judging. Just the activity of judging when, 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 I'm, when you're sitting here in meditation and the mind judges someone else, maybe judges somebody at work, or even the mind judges yourself, like this whole activity of colonization can be just turned back, right back on yourself. We do such a great job of seeing ourselves as better than or less than or no good or really great. It's the same process. It's almost like there's a quality of othering of ourselves. Again, Martin Luther King, he calls this, you could say, narrow provincialism. He says, the real tragedy of such narrow provincialism is that we see people as entities or merely as things. Too seldom do we see people in their true humanness. is really what we're doing is just opening up the space to be able to open to the true humanness around us, the true humanness in the people that we come face to face with day after day. So tonight for the sitting meditation, I invite you to have two things. Be sensitive if judging comes up, and what you do with it is just to notice that it's judging. That's all it is. No, that's what the mind does, judges. So you don't have to judge yourself for judging either. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, it's just, so yes, that's society. That's how we get class divisions. There it is. And what would it be like to see the activity of the mind tonight? It's just a play of society. It's not you. It has nothing to do with you personally. You're not a bad person. You're not a good person. Just, just this crazy mind that's kind of doing its thing as you sit on a cushion and you bring your mind back to the breath. Notice it. To see what it's like just to have that frame, if it, if it makes a shift, if there's any relief from that. So we, we don't have to get so, take it so personally. Okay, so I invite you to... Maybe just take a minute or two to stand up and move around, stretch your legs, and then we'll begin to sit together in a minute.